All right, listeners, welcome back to part two. We're going to be taking a deeper dive with Erica Dagnan, Minihan, and talking a little bit more about her businesses as well as her investment background. Erica, with that said, I'd love to, you know, just just have a little bit more background from your side. Can you tell me a little bit more about being an entrepreneur, investor, and leader for years now, what that's been like and, and how you got to where you are? Could you fill us in on some of that background? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So like you, I grew up in California. I graduated from UCLA with a degree in business economics in 1998, moved here to New York City, where I currently live, to work on Wall Street doing investment banking. Started off with a firm called Solomon Smith Barney, where I was an investment banking analyst covering the energy sector, so working on debt and equity placements, as well as IPOs, uh, mergers and acquisitions, transactions. Um, those types of things for energy companies, um, really got a great training in finance from that experience. Uh, that firm, Solomon Smith Barney, actually that year um, was uh, had a merger with Citigroup, the firm known as Citigroup for you youngins out there. After a couple of years of doing that, I actually moved to Credit Suisse First Boston, where I had a role um, in the asset management um, division on a startup that they were incubating in-house for ultra high net worth investors. So putting together a digital platform to help ultra high net worth folks actually be able to access and monitor their accounts online. Back in the year 1999, 2000, that was actually considered a really innovative thing just to actually let people log into the internet and see how much money they had in their account. Um, So it's kind of funny to think about now. Uh, After I did that for a few years, I was accepted uh, to do the MBA program at Columbia Business School, where I earned my MBA in finance, graduated from there, and went back to Wall Street to work as a trader for a firm called Cantor Fitzgerald, um, trading asset-backed securities, um, CDOs, CMBS, and pools of mortgages, all the product that ended up tanking the economy in 2008. I had the foresight in 2006 to realize that I wasn't really comfortable with the types of products that we were selling and trading. And so I decided to get out of that side of the business and look for something else. Um, One of the unique things about me is that, you know, unlike most women who work on Wall Street, I actually had all three of my kids when I was still in my 20s. Um, So by that year, when I was about 29, I had just had my youngest daughter um, and I decided that I I wanted to stay, you know, and continue a career in finance. But I really wanted to get out of Wall Street because I could see just how much manipulation there was in the public markets and in, you know, the later stage of financings. So I was really fortunate to have an opportunity in New York Um, to find a role in early stage venture capital. It's actually pretty hard to break into venture capital. At that time in New York in 2006, that was actually the year that, you know, one of the most prominent venture capital firms, First Round Capital, um, even launched here in New York. So, you know, we had Union Square Ventures, we had, you know, First Round, I think we had maybe one other firm, but really, you know, people thought the idea of venture capital happening in New York City was a joke, you know, it wasn't serious, it wasn't real, which is kind of insane since New York City is actually like the financial capital of the world, yet we still had no credibility in venture capital. And I had actually joined as executive director of an investment firm called 
Golden Seeds, which was one of the first um, organizations to do gender lens investing. So, you know, we were organized with the perspective to only invest in female founded businesses. Um, so that's where I got my start, really fell in love with it, really so much preferred working with founders at the early stage, but still being able to use my you know, financial analysis skills to do deals um, and to be part of the process of actually creating something and growing a company rather than just, you know, sort of selling it for parts at the end. <laughs> and, you know, I've done it ever since. This will be my... 16th year doing early stage venture. I've invested in hundreds of companies, you know, have advised thousands of founders, started uh, a few companies during that time. Most recently, five years ago, I started a thousand angels, which is a digital investment network for accredited investors who want to build a portfolio of direct investments into early stage companies. And although my partner and I from Rain Ventures have been investing together for almost nine years, this year we've actually decided to bring on outside capital and raise a $50 million fund to make seed stage investments in high growth technology companies with diverse founders. So that's kind of a little bit of my story and um, happy to share it with you guys. <laughs> Thank you. And that is an amazing story. Right. We're talking about being a woman of color breaking into the financial industry. And I mean, first off, wow, I'm extraordinarily impressed with what you were able to accomplish there. Um, and then talking about how you were raising your kids, three kids, I believe. Did I catch that correct? Three kids while being an investment banker. Probably, I'm, I'm just going to make an assumption here and, and correct me if I'm wrong, working investment banking hours. Um, it, that is absolutely amazing. And then going back and getting your MBA at that time as well. Uh, so impressive and absolutely amazing. And I love how you have, you know, moving forward, talking about your female-oriented skew or, or kind of the gender lens on investment that's so important to hear about. I, I was wondering, so you, you mentioned like the reason for moving into venture capital was you wanted to honestly be able to, to get out of that that investment banking world in the sense of being on Wall Street, which you know is a very taxing spot. But your interest particularly in, in gender lens investment, how did that come about? And could you kind of break down how you do that investment now? Yeah, so I didn't particularly have any necessarily an interest in gender lens investing. So Golden Seeds was started by a woman who had had a really successful career at JP Morgan. I think she was the COO of their sales and trading division. And mm -hmm. when she left JP Morgan, she felt that she saw a systemic problem, which, you know, and this is back in let's say she had the idea to solve the problem in 2005, right? That was like right before when she started Golden Seeds. It's 2021 now, so we're talking much later. But what she noticed is that for these public companies, there were no women on the boards. She felt that it was very problematic that there were no women on the boards. And you can see now that, you know, NASDAQ has implemented rules around diversity requirements for boards. It only took, you know, 15 or 16, it took really forever, but let's say she she recognized this 15 16 years ago so she was just thinking how would we solve this problem well the way people get on boards generally the people that are on boards of companies are their early investors you look at who's on the board of facebook you know it's the people that were the early investors in facebook who's on the board of uber it's the people who were the early investors so she thought if i can put together an organization of women investors 
you know, and we start investing in companies, we will be on these boards, you know, it's going to take a decade, but we'll get there. Um, So that was really the impetus behind it. Um, And, you know, I think that just from a demand perspective, she thought, great, well, if we're, you know, getting a a group of women together to invest, let's, you know, invest in other women led businesses, because generally, you know, there's a, there's a shortage of capital for these businesses and there still is. So that was really sort of how I got involved with it. It wasn't like I had this great idea at the time, but I thought, okay, you know, that makes sense to me. Let's do it. I'm, you know, I don't, I don't really care who we're investing in, but just, just do it. And, you know, wherever we have opportunity. And so that opportunity remains 15, 16 years later, we still have less than 2% of venture dollars going to women less than 1% of venture dollars going to black and brown founders. So there's still a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done, a tremendous amount of value to be captured in making investments in those sectors. And, you know, unfortunately, just by the nature of the way our country is, it's probably going to take, you know, there's probably going to be an opportunity to build there for a while. People sort of talk about, oh, aren't we worried there are too many, you know, new VC funds coming out with black fund managers focused on making investments in black people. It's like, there could be probably $5 billion that shifted into this asset class, and it would barely make a dent. (laughs) So we've got, you know, a long way to go to making sure that the best risk adjusted return opportunities, regardless of race, get funded. And the reason that's so important to our economy is that innovation is stifled if capital is racist or sexist. Our economy just won't perform as well. It's a handicap. No, I think that that's absolutely correct as well. And like amazing point to make there. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand the impact of how capital allocation can have a massive impact on the success of businesses uh, bridging the gap. For example, COVID has been a tremendous time for many people to be able to once again, bridge that gap. A lot of companies, we have things such as mezzanine funding, which help people, uh, help companies that are even massive later stage companies be able to, to get uh, bridged funding to be able to IPO and, and be able to make it. So we have massive companies all the way down to these small companies where funding is literally the most important piece for them to be able to stay alive. And when you don't have that funding going into these diverse groups, these businesses aren't able to build and grow to the size that has a massive impact on many people across the market. So that's a really great point. And, you know, honestly, I would love to dive in a little bit more on the diversity talk as well, if, if you're comfortable with that. Diverse VC, a big part of, of what we're trying to accomplish is, is bringing more diversity into the, the start business space, right? Whether that be gender, whether it be ethnicity, whether it be accessibility, there are so many different ways to, to skew things. You know, it could be your background, criminal backgrounds, for example, and so many different different aspects and, and bringing that into businesses to make sure that we're addressing diversity in the workplace to make a better business from a financial standpoint, a growth standpoint, and a brand and reputation standpoint. Now, the more time I spend looking at this, the more time I realize, kind of as you said earlier, that we only have 2% of dollars going to certain companies. Or many companies will take diversity and it will be the last thing they're thinking about. For your side, I'd love to hear what your perspective is on how the venture capital industry is currently responding to investing in more diverse candidates or, or businesses. Do you think it's being done well? Where, where's the room for improvement? I just would love to see your perspective on this. 
there's a lot of movement going on. So you're seeing venture capital firms institute tracking of metrics around percentage of funding that goes to women or people of color in their portfolios. You're seeing them implement initiatives to expand their networks and their access to founders of color. You know, you're seeing them it's impossible for me to tell if they're doing it in the right way or not. Unfortunately, as a Black woman, I think that I probably suffer from a fraction of the uh, racial and gender bias that that these guys are dealing with. So I can't really understand um, what the impact is having on them. Although the, the truth is that if you're an American, you know, we all have some bi- some levels of bias programmed into us, you know, no matter who we are. So I think people are, are making an attempt. They're trying. And the, w- the way that I look at it is it's like, it's not their responsibility. It's our responsibility. I think that if as women, if as Black people, people of color, we want to have more access to investment, you know, we have to start investing in each other. We have to, you know, do the work of creating these capital pools. And, you know, that's what my partner Monique and I are working very hard to do. You know, I think the Golden Seeds example is a great example. The founder of Golden Seeds, her name is Stephanie. You didn't see her sitting there whining and complaining about why women weren't on boards or whining and complaining to the men. She said, okay, you know, if we want to change this, here's what we do. We make sure that we're the people who have invested and that we make sure that, you know, so I think it's really, really important just to have that approach. You know, I I think it's absolutely insane. I would never look at um, a venture fund that has five white male partners and and go whine to them about, you know, why aren't they investing in more black women? That's mm-hmm. not their responsibility. If I think there's an opportunity that's being overlooked by investing in these people that they claim they can't help but overlook, then we should be taking our capital and investing in it. You know, think of it like a hedge fund. You know, if you see an arbitrage opportunity, you know, an opportunity for a trade where you can arbitrage something? Are you going to go to some hedge fund and say, oh my God, you know, why aren't you doing this trade? Don't you see there's value there? No, you just do the trade. (laughs) You know, you don't go beg everyone else to why aren't they making the trade? And, you know, I think that that's what we, as when I say we, you know, I mean, as women, I mean, as African-Americans, as people of color, that's what we need to do for, for each other. We need to invest in each other. And we need to also be the ones who gain from the investments and not expect other people to jump through hoops to change their ways to save us or to make money off of our efforts. That's a very interesting perspective, Erica. I really do agree with you on the side that internally speaking, we should kind of leverage the fact that we have these communities and and we should be investing in each other. I think the piece that I was pulling, I'm pulling out now that we've kind of been building on this conversation is where should we hold some level of accountability, right? And I'm not saying that every white person, every male is sexist or racist for their investment styles or anything like that. But, you know, just thinking about it, you know, it is a historically challenging industry to get into. Well, I uh, think, you know, Listen, accountability starts with yourself. You're not in a place, I'm not in a place, neither of us in our place to quote unquote, hold anybody else accountable. If you believe in free markets, the markets will always make everything. (laughs) The markets are are the most efficient um, 
provider of justice. Where I think we do need accountability is within pension funds and other institutional asset managers who, for example, are taking the pension money of women employees, Black employees, all of their, you know, decades of savings and investing it all in hedge funds and private equity funds that are 100% managed by white men. That I think we cannot abide by. And it's really up to, you know, those folks, which really would take a grassroots effort to demand that they change the way that they allocate capital to more equitably represent their investor base. Because people seem to think, oh boy, you know, well, the problem is that we don't have money. It's the white people. They have all the money and they're deciding where it goes. It's actually worse than that. It's the money of women. It's the money of people of color. And the managers who are in charge of it are not deploying it in a way that I think would make sense to the people whose money is being invested. So I think from that perspective, absolutely accountability is required But I think we should never underestimate the power of technology and the individuals who are aligned. You know, if you see what happened with GameStop, I mean, it's just, (laughs) it's it's such a great example because we're talking about a chat room, you know, a, a Reddit thread with a following of just over 2 million people. It's not that many people, but... Some of them, not every single one, just some of them got on the same page and they were able to, you know, basically take down a hedge fund. So Mm. people think, oh my God, little old me, I can't do anything. If we get smart, you know, if individuals get smart and think about ways to work together, absolutely things can be changed. And that was a great example of showing just how fast the power of the masses can uh, have an impact on something obviously completely different issue, but you know, there is power there. Now it's really interesting. You say that, you know, I think with the the GameStop example, you're you're smack dab on the money there. It's a, it's the idea of a swarm of fish. I think there's an image I saw. It was like, Hey, what's going on with GameStop right now? It was, it was a swarm of fish, millions of little fish made to look like a massive shark. Whereas typically one-on-one versus a, a shark and a little fish, it would be crazy to go against the fish going against. it would be David and Goliath. Right. But in this instance, Goliath would definitely win out. Whereas now everybody's coming together and they're, they're able to be successful. Now, what I'm getting to here, what I'm, I'm intrigued by is the idea of what's holding people back from accomplishing this. In your mind, what, what's holding people back from coming together and making this effort to, to be successful? And this isn't an easy question, Erica. I recognize that first up. So there's no right or wrong answer here, but I'd love to see kind of your perspective on this. It's a few things. So number one, there's regulation, you know, so for example, to invest in certain asset classes, you need to be an accredited investor. And unfortunately, the you know, the definition has been an income test. It's an income asset test. People are floating the idea of actually making it an educational test instead, like, can you answer this exam? Although I'm sure there'd be a lot of cheating, but whatever. At least you, you know, went through the questions. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of the day, 
it's true. Like some of these things are a little bit more complicated. As somebody who's been in this space for a long time, I know for a fact that a lot of these like crowdfunding things that you see, a lot of them are, are just scamming for money. And like the underlying investment is garbage. And I think that's really sad because an average person who this is not their job, you know, they have no way to tell the difference. So I think that, you know, it's tough because the market's not really set up to like properly regulate large numbers of people investing into smaller things. I'm not sure how we fix it, but I do know that technology will play a part in it and people will get up the learning curve. And it's really about more accessibility of information. So going back to the GameStop example, that's a really great example. You know, I started on Wall Street in 1998, right? So let's say 98 through like the year 2000, when I was an investment banking analyst, 98 and 99, there wasn't a lot on the internet. You would go into forums, but it wasn't the way it is now. So a lot of the information around investing and, you know, sort of like options trades and what was going, you know, it wasn't readily available like it is now. We didn't have this 24-hour news cycle and everything's coming at you on Twitter. And right now, anybody who wants to sort of get up to speed on trading a stock can find that information immediately. We just didn't have that before. So once there was free flow of information, that's how we ended up in this situation where the people could actually band together and take a trade against a hedge fund that had put themselves in an incredibly stupid position, right? And do it really efficiently. And it was just beautiful to see, you know, if you had said 20 years ago, could people do that? People would say, geez, you know, most people don't know the first thing about a short squeeze or gamma squeezes or options tradings or how to implement something like that. But you know what? Now we do. And so I think similarly, these crowdfunding platforms, you know, are maybe five or six years old, really, or, you know, maybe a little bit more, maybe they're like eight years old, but people are still new to the asset class. I think that in a decade, people are going to have gotten up the information curve enough, and we're going to sort of have more technology in place that prevents some of the more fraudulent things that are going on from happening, that there will be more access, I think, more democratized access to early stage investments, to the private market funding that's going on. But then the other thing too that I think is really scary and I've become really aware of is that, you know, I left Wall Street 15, 16 years ago to get into early stage venture because I kind of figured okay, this is much better. It's not as easy for people to sort of manipulate the prices and manipulate the assets in the private markets the way they do in the public markets, because there's not really like a point to it. But sadly, you know, over the last 10 years, we have seen extreme manipulation. And so as much as I begrudge, you know, somebody like raising a million dollars on a crowdfunding platform and scamming people out of a million dollars there, like we're literally seeing companies raise billions of dollars at billion dollar valuations, like a WeWork that's similarly just scamming people on like, you know, in the professional and it's like a giant scam. So I guess scams are going to happen no matter where we are. You can't kind of get everybody to to behave sensibly. And we've just seen such a phase shift in, you know, what the markets are and what they're willing to accept. You know, in the late 90s, 
for a company to go public, it had to be profitable and making money. Like the idea of a company that was losing money going public was just kind of like, wait, what what is that? That's not even a thing, (laughs) you know? And now it's like, oh, you're going to lose money forever, maybe? Okay, no big deal. Like go public, you know? It's just like, it's the weirdest thing. So I mean, it's almost inexplicable, the financial world that we live in. So we'll see. I, who knows what the future will bring. Yeah. I mean, part of me feels like, and this is just in conversation, right? A big part of that is investors just want to make their money, right? Hey, let's IPO. Let's get out of this. Wash your hands. You know, let's let the public market kind of take uh, ownership over, over, you know, part of the investment that we've taken on and let's lock in our gains. Although, you know, there will be a, a certain amount of time that the C-suite are going to have to stay on or or a certain amount of investment that can be removed over time. So it's really interesting to see how that kind of process is moving forward. And I think it's be a great opportunity to shift and talk a little bit more about your business, Thousand Angels, and perhaps even Rain Ventures, and understand a little bit more about how you guys are sourcing deals and, and avoiding these, we'll say, fraudulent companies or, or shams. I'd love to, to learn a little bit more about that. How are you guys sourcing your deals, and how are you guys determining what kind of businesses you want to invest in today? Yeah, sure. So we're very open about deal sourcing, but really I would say just we have a very well-known brand. We have lots of founders reaching out to us to pitch their businesses. I'd say we have really strong ties with the academic community in New York, particularly through Columbia and Columbia Business School, but also schools like NYU and Cornell Tech as well as, you know, just the New York startup community in general. So really, it's just kind of being in the space for a really long time and adding value to your portfolio companies and the companies that you work with. That's kind of how you generate deal flow. What are the criteria that we look for? Well, for Rain Ventures, um, we look for technology and technology-enabled businesses. So that can be enterprise tech, B2B tech, or consumer tech, or, you know, even a consumer product that has some element of technology being used in its distribution. So it could be a D2C consumer company that's maybe using technology to manage inventory or something like that. Beyond that, you know, we're looking for scalable businesses. So companies that can get to $50 million plus in revenue within five years, uh, capital efficient companies that hopefully don't need to raise any more than $25 million in total capital to get to sustainability. Uh, amazing teams. Nobody's going to give you money to go pay somebody else to build your idea for you. You know, there has to be a really clear understanding as to why you and your team are the people to execute on this plan. And then companies, you know, that have great product market fit, great founder market fit and some traction, which means, you know, sort of proof of market acceptance of the product or service. Mm -hmm. Okay, very interesting. A lot of great components to be aware of there. Now, Taking all this into consideration and and honestly kind of moving back to part of the conversation earlier where we were talking about how the industry is more limited or or less vulnerable, I would say, to mass populations of people coming in and altering it. I'd love to understand a little bit more. Where do you see the venture capital industry moving in the next five to 10 years as well? I do see, I think, democratization of access to the venture capital asset. So there's kind of a lot going on right now around how people can get invested in venture funds. I personally, like, 
I don't like to go against the market. It makes me a little bit, just a little bit nervous around do people understand the illiquidity of the assets and the amount of risks that they're taking on? I feel no. But technically, we also have a market where, you know, retail investors can go, you know, buy shares of whatever company they want to, and nobody's dropping dead. People are figuring it out eventually. So, you know, I think really that's kind of the direction that we're going to be going in. And it just, it makes me sick that people all of a sudden, and it's just, it's really irritating anytime this kind of happens to an industry that you're in. But this is really kind of an industry for finance people who are interested in technology or or business or making investments. It's not supposed to be like some cool, sexy thing. I don't know why all of a sudden it's like all these celebrities, you know, are like, oh, you know, I want to be like a rapper slash VC or, you know, whatever. It just doesn't make any sense. It's like, wait, why do you even like math or anything? I don't know. So it does make me a little bit nervous that all of a sudden people view it as some sort of industry where they're going to get a job and be, we can't all be VCs, right? So it's a teeny tiny industry. It's mainly dependent on your ability to go out and raise capital from people, which is really, really difficult. There are very, very limited junior roles at these firms. So it's not like, you know, investment banking or lawyer where there's sort of a path up, you know, it just doesn't really work that way. It's never a good idea to overhype any particular aspect of the financial ecosystem. I'll give you a great similar example. When I was about to go to business school, which was in 2002, Mm -hmm. for some reason, being a financial analyst was considered the coolest job on Wall Street. These people were literally celebrities. It was like Henry Blodgett and I don't remember who else, but for some reason, same thing. It's like literally like the nerdiest, most horrible job ever. But all of a sudden it was like, man, that's what you want to do. They're rock stars. And now it's back to like pariahs, right? They sort of made sure the Chinese wall thing was going back on and now nobody wants it. So I kind of feel like that's happened too to venture. It's like, why did everyone all of a sudden decide they want this job or this is like some cool job or particularly that like anybody can do this job with no <laughs> no sort of financial or operating experience. It's just, it's become really, really interesting to see it unnecessarily get so popular. And then the other thing too, is everyone, you know, people have this misunderstanding that venture is a job where you're going to make all this money and, you know, get rich quick. That's like being at a hedge fund, being in venture, especially if it's early stage, it's extremely like get rich slow. I mean, a lot of the partners at funds I know that are successful, I mean, they don't see exits for like a decade. It's, really one of those things. It takes forever. You have to be extremely lucky. You have to be extremely patient. And it's a lot of hard work. I don't know. I think it's funny that it's become so popular lately. It's very interesting to to say, and I think a lot of listeners might be surprised to find that. This is probably just speaking to only knowing a few people in the BC space, but multiple people will open up a fund they'll close it, right? So they raise funds, then they have to invest the funds into a company or companies and basically break it down based on you know what they think is going to most likely be a 20x return because they know that, let's say, yeah, simple math, out of 10 companies, 
one is going to be a 20x return. And three to four of those are probably going to be like a two to 5x to return. And the other ones are going to be complete failures, right? And that's, that's actually very uh, optimistic look on that. And then they'll open up another round of funding, they'll get more funds, then invest into a whole nother set of companies, right? So this isn't something where people are just taking the money and it's, you know, you invest it. And then a year later, it's five, 10 years down the road when you actually get a return. Now you do have like management fees, I guess you could say where you can pay a base salary, but you're not getting these massive payouts until far down the road when the company is either invested in by another fund or, or various things, depending on how these agreements are put together as well. So there's a ton of moving parts. So listeners, if you are thinking about getting into VC, definitely know it, it does take a lot to move into the space. Erica, with that said, I'd love to just talk, kind of round out this conversation, you know, for people who are interested in moving into this position, because I think, you know, that's kind of where we are. Uh, a lot of people are looking to move into it. Who's the right person or, or you know, I would even say perhaps people find interest in the role because you're investing in companies, you're talking to businesses, uh, you know, there is that financial component to it and that operating component to it. What would you advise people to do if, if they are interested in the role and how would they bridge that gap? Well, basically, there are only three skill sets that are needed in venture capital. And one is um, the ability to raise money. So if you're somebody who just happens to have a lot of connections to lots of really wealthy people, there will always be a place for you in venture capital. Two is operating experience. So if you're somebody who just worked at a startup that went public in five years or, you know, exited for a billion dollars and you were like an early employee and you saw the whole thing and you were part of it, there will be a place for you in venture capital. And then third, if you're somebody, you know, who somehow has built a track record of making investments that have been successful then there will be a place for you. So those are really kind of the three most important things. The only one that it's really possible for, you know, people to do anything about is, or young people who don't have the ability to start making their own investments is the operating experience one. So, you know, getting operating experience at a startup is really, really helpful because that's the only way for you to actually know what you're talking about. I've seen kids who are like, 22, 23, like they've never worked and they're like, oh, I want to be a VC and like tell companies how to do stuff. It's like, well, on what basis would you be giving them this advice? <laughs> how, how do you know how things will work? Like, how are you analyzing this? Like you literally have no experience doing every, anything. So I think getting operating experience is the most valuable realistically. If you're doing something else and you're just trying to get exposure you could always contact maybe like a smaller VC and say, hey, I'd love to help you out, you know, maybe write some investment memos for some of the deals that you guys are working on. But similarly, you have to actually know how to do that and be good at doing that. You can't just make something up like it's not going to be helpful. So I think you kind of have to figure out what is my expertise going to be? Is it 
that I really believe that I have some sort of unique financial analysis skills that would be valuable to people. I've certainly had like great interns, you know, from Columbia Business School who had prior finance experience were doing their MBA and they would intern me for me for the summer and like write investment memos on all my deals and get terrific experience that way, right? They could say, great, you know, I did this and have this experience. The operating experience, really valuable, but you just don't know for sure if the company is going to be successful. Um, but even if it fails, if you've really learned something from your experience, you can possibly parlay it into that as well. And then the third one, yeah, if, you know, let's say you went to prep school with like a bunch of rich kids with rich families, then you can, you know, Kushner your way into a venture, <laughs> a venture fund. So those are the key strategies. But, you know, at the end of the day, there is no one path. Like everyone you talk to who's in venture kind of got into it from some really unique angle and just scrappiness and just, you know, or we're lucky in some way to have a connection. But there is no one path. That's what really makes it different from other jobs. Mm hmm. Tremendous, tremendous insights. Thank you so much, Erica. I'd love to round out the podcast now and, and take a step back from discussing, you know, being in the venture space, uh, diverse investment and kind of where the industry is moving and all that. And remind everybody that we're human, right? Outside of the office, we love to do things. We have different hobbies, extracurriculars and projects. I'd love to know on your side, do you have an extracurricular or a hobby or a project that helps you get your mind off work and reset? Yeah, I mean, literally, when you're trying to raise a fund, you cannot do anything else. So I literally do nothing else, like 100% of my energy goes into this. Besides that, you know, and plus we're in quarantine, so hobbies are in short supply. Um, I'd say, you know, besides that, I'm lucky to have uh, a gym in my building. They just renovated the common space in my building. So we've got like a pretty, a pretty cool, fancy gym. So You'll see me down there from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. every morning. But besides that, you know, and walking my dog, there's there's not a lot else going on. Yeah, but who knows, you know, maybe after quarantine is lifted, after next year when we have our fund in place, uh, I'll, I'll develop something interesting and let you know. <laughs> Super excited. Erica, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your insights in the venture capital space you know, your history, and, and just honestly inspiring so many of the listeners because of your background. So thank you so much. With that said, I'd love to open up the platform. Do you have anything you want to share with the listeners? Um, anything you're working on uh, or anything like that? Please feel free. The floor is yours. Yeah, sure. So if you're interested in learning more about early stage investing, you can check out our YouTube channel, 1000 Angels, 1000 Angels on YouTube. We have a couple of really helpful playlists because I always get inundated by people who want to talk to me or chat about things. And actually, I've made myself available uh, via webinar and playlist uh, so you can listen to me for hours if you're so interested. We have a great playlist called Investor Training that has, I think, 12 different sessions on a whole variety of topics that any early stage investor wants to be familiar with, from valuations to term sheets to negotiating deals to how to put together a portfolio to diligence. And then for Rain Ventures, we recently started a video podcast called The Series A List. You'll also actually find that on the 1000 Angels channel. But the Series A list is a monthly live video webcast 
where we interview other top venture investors and startup founders. We've brought on Nihal Mehta from ENIAC. We've brought on Megan Cross from Amplifier Ventures. We've brought on the founders of uh, Squire and Pet Plate. And I think we're actually having one of the managing directors from BlackRock's new BlackRock Impact Opportunity Fund as our February guest. So I would definitely check it out. You can learn a lot from the people that we've brought on the show, both from the founder perspective and the investor perspective. Wow, that is fantastic. I will definitely make sure to tune in as well and pick up as much as I can. With that said, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I wish you the best of luck with raising your fund and every one of your many ventures that you have going on. Um, thank you so much for coming on once again. All right. Thank you. Okay, listeners, that's all we have for today's podcast. If you enjoyed, if you learned one thing, you have a new idea, a different perspective on life, I count that as a success. With that said, I'm your host, Alec Taylor, and hope to have you back on the next episode of How They Did It Business Podcast, where we share stories from the best in business. See you soon.